Welcome to Politics and Science. I'm your host, John Barkhausen. This week, uh, we're having, again, Ray Peet, uh, physiologist and science historian from Eugene, Oregon. Uh, we're going to be talking about the unfolding uh, coronavirus uh, crisis here in the United States and around the world. And this was recorded on March 31st, 2020. It's not intended as medical advice just an independent analysis of the situation. Also, the following show presents the viewpoints of its producers and participants and does not necessarily represent the viewpoints of any other person or organization. Here we go. Once again, I'm really happy to have Dr. Raymond Pete on my show, Politics and Science. And uh, Ray has a PhD from the University of Oregon, and he specializes in physiology and you also worked in hormones, is that correct, Ray? Right. At yeah. Age-related reproductive hormones. Mm. And uh, we're, we've been having a conversation the past few weeks about the ongoing uh, coronavirus, uh, so-called pandemic, swept the globe and uh, is scaring everybody, um, especially in the United States, where the, the news reporting is a, is a particularly uh, sensational I, do you watch mainstream news, Ray? I, I don't usually, but I've no. been checking it out lately. It's just plain scary, you know, talking about bodies piling up in the backs of trucks and New York City, and it sounds horrendous. But today we're going to talk about the actual data about this disease, and uh, we've been tracking it over the last uh, couple weeks. They've been predicting, you know, huge numbers of mortalities, and do you see that yet, Ray? No, no, I, I haven't seen uh, any numbers that convince me that uh, anything is unusual is happening uh, according to the virus mortality. Uh, Can I ask you, where do you go for data? I, I Google, mostly, uh, and somewhat on, on PubMed uh, when... When something on Google isn't available, I often find backup material on, on PubMed. And so, where are we in the in the in the figures of um, maybe first give us what a normal flu year would bring again, and and where we are now? A, a little over a year ago, the CDC announced that the uh, 2017 to 18 uh, flu year had killed uh, at least 80,000 people, but then uh, several months later, they revised it down to a little over 60,000, uh, which uh, I, I, it's interesting because it shows how uh, wildly approximate their estimates of the deaths are. But they say uh, that the average has been a little over 40,000 for the last uh, ten years or so. I, I just saw an article on HuffPost uh, from 2014 uh, by, I think, Lawrence Solomon was his name, uh, uh, quoting CDC people in uh, 2004 uh, saying that uh, they had had contact from the uh, vaccine industry worrying about their, their weak sales, that they had decided uh, to uh, rouse the public uh, by uh, uh, convincing them that something 
dangerous was happening that they should uh, get vaccinated. Uh, that that uh, follows uh, uh, long after the uh, 1976 uh, swine flu fiasco, where they supposedly had a pandemic, but uh, only one person died in the U.S. Uh, but uh, it, it, in this uh, program they, they started in 2004, it was to uh, uh, get media uh, excitement going uh, on uh, the number of flu deaths. And so even though the verified uh, uh, actual immunological uh, evidence uh, from people dying of respiratory diseases and uh, showing that uh, there uh, was uh, uh, an influenza virus or particular other viruses present that showed very, very few documented cases uh, of flu uh, uh, just because they weren't doing many tests. But despite that, the, the um, national uh, statistics based on uh, uh, death certificates showed uh, uh, several hundred uh, uh, people recorded as, as dying of influenza. But uh, with those uh, on the order of uh, maybe a couple dozen documented and uh, several hundred uh, with with doctors' statements on a death certificate uh, without uh, e expressing whether they had tested for the virus. Uh, with those very small numbers, they didn't have a good case for mass vaccinations. Uh, so they started in including uh, pneumonia deaths uh, with with influenza, so they called it influenza-like uh, diseases, and that that's how they managed to get uh, uh, up in the tens of thousands of deaths every flu season. So they started including a broader category of illnesses and put it under the the heading of flu. Um, yeah, yeah, that way they could get approximately. 10% uh, of everyone uh, dying, well, 6% uh, on, on the average year was closer to everyone dying during the four months of the flu season. Uh, they could uh, classify it as, as flu. But uh, the old people, that's probably just about the normal proportion of, of, of very old people uh, dying. Uh, they'll get respiratory problems uh, their their breathing and, and circulation are are failing and so the lungs fail to work and so they accumulate water uh, and so uh, they can put down pneumonia as the cause of death or respiratory problems and when the lungs are slowing down from old age and circulatory and other diseases uh, the flow of mucus which normally uh, runs up the tubes and, and uh, to the area of the mouth and the mucus gets swallowed, uh, that flow of mucus slows down. And so the bacteria that are always falling into the bronchial tubes uh, uh, from the air, uh, they stay in place longer just because the cilia aren't sweeping them out quickly. Uh, and so as you're 
and dying from uh, heart failure, liver and lung failure and so on. Uh, the mucus uh, allows bacteria to accumulate and so you'll very likely have an infection, superimposed bacterial infection uh, on top of whatever is happening. And a viral infection also slows the cilia movement and uh, lets the, the mucus and aerial bacteria accumulate. So a typical viral infection also ends up with a bacterial infection, which uh, the, the bacteria uh, can cause all kinds of, of uh, damage uh, and uh, are, are pretty sure to kill a person off if they aren't getting antibacterial antibiotics. Uh, but that that doesn't mean that that the bacteria was the cause of the infection, or even that the the, the virus added to a bacteria added to circulatory problems. Uh, then you can choose any one of those to to blame it on. Sure. Yeah. So basically, their body was shutting down to begin with, and that's why they got infected. Yeah. So with the new improved statistics where they went from several hundred people dying of actually dying of the flu to 40 to 60,000 if I have that right per year mm-hmm. which is an extraordinary increase considering those numbers how many now are have actually died officially of coronavirus where we stand today on the 31st of March I think it was Probably yesterday that I looked at it, and it was uh, about 2,400 at that time. In just a day, it had gone uh, just about doubled, uh, so it was going up fast. But since about 10% of the people uh, dying of flu, uh, you would expect to have the coronavirus, because when they were doing the samples of people with respiratory diseases, they would see about half the people had no identifiable cause. And then the rhinovirus would be maybe 30%, the flu virus uh, maybe 15%, and the coronavirus uh, maybe another 15%, something like that. Uh, So just on the basis of samples from previous years, you would expect maybe 10% of the dead people to have an identifiable coronavirus in them. And so if 45 people are expected to die, then 10% of those you could say anywhere from 5 to 15%, but 10% would be 4,500 expected dead people containing the coronavirus. Not not that it killed them, but that it was identifiably present as they uh, were sick with respiratory disease. I see. And they actually got tested. Are the f- Of all the people who die of the flu, and they say 50% of those are of unknown flu causes, does that mean they haven't tested them or they just can't identify the strain? Couldn't identify it. It could have been bacteria or just simple heart disease. So what you're saying, and I think what you said in the previous shows, was that people are dying. They're they're testing them for coronavirus, which they come up positive, but it's not necessarily what killed them. Uh, um, True. Uh, If you 
and have a limited number of tests and you use them mostly in hospitals at first, people who come in, uh, I don't know why they bother testing sick people coming in as if they had something special with which to treat the coronavirus. But uh, uh, most most of the tests, uh, people have said, uh, are really for any coronavirus, not this particular strain. But uh, since they don't really have anything effective for coronavirus, uh, why would why they should be testing uh, sick people coming into the hospital uh, isn't very clear. Uh, but um, uh, when you test only sick people, then you're going to have a very high percentage uh, of uh, the tests showing positive uh, just because of that uh, known figure from previous years that 10% of the respiratory infections uh, averaged coronavirus. And therefore, uh, of the people who die, uh, there is also going to be a, a very high percentage because you're testing primarily the sick people, then as you go out into a broader part of the population and start testing healthy people, the mortality rate per infection uh, shrinks. That happened in China from uh, uh, something like 35 or 4% shrank down to around 1%. Uh, and uh, uh, South Korea uh, had a very big testing program, and, and so they had only a six-tenth percent mortality. And I don't know if that's uh, the situation in, in New York, Spain, and Italy, uh, where they're having a, a high percentage of mortality, but you can't know at all what the numbers mean unless you know who they're picking out to test. Yeah, that that makes sense. Um, and But I think the reason they're testing the people who come in is because they're they're worried about the disease being so such a fatal one, and they're they're trying to determine whether these people need to be isolated or not. Except they didn't have any uh, meaningful figures on which to assume it would be fatal. Right. Since, since they're talking about these preliminary tests on sick people. I see. But it's, it's, it seems we're operating on the assumption of that it is fatal right out of the box because of what yeah, the, the um, – go ahead. It, it looks very much as if they were inclined towards that presumption by the fact that the World Economic Forum and the Gates Foundation and Johns Hopkins University organized this pretend pandemic in October of last year. Uh, what to do, how to prepare the government and hospitals to respond if a, a deadly coronavirus were imported and uh, threatened to kill tens of millions of people. Uh, so they had this uh, in everyone's consciousness, they in, invited people who were in influential positions politically and economically around the world uh, and had them... Uh, uh, run through this this program in October of last year. So uh, everyone had this implanted fear. Uh, and so uh, at the first meaningless numbers, uh, that I think inclined people uh, to uh, jump to the 
the fear that this was that imaginary virus that they had proposed could be imported from South America. Hmm. So basically they had a dry run for this back in October. And maybe you could explain to me what the Gates Foundation, what's it, what is its relationship to the uh, World Health Organization, which I thought was a uh, multi-country, you know, basically all the countries in the world uh, where they get together and, and decide mutually on how to approach health issues. The foundation is, is pouring a lot of money into reorganizing the, the world, for example, African uh, agricultural programs. Uh, I, I read that I think it was compared to the United Kingdom uh, donations to that United Nations Fund, uh, the Gates Foundation was giving 14 times as much money as the whole United Kingdom. Uh, and so they're pouring money into changing uh, the, the economy, focusing on, on Africa, uh, uh, privatizing uh, the economy, the uh, economics, farming and such, and the healthcare system. So, so they're not just pouring money into the into the WHO. You're talking about actually pouring money into specific countries in Africa. Yeah. Okay. And so their vision of what should happen in the world. They were also. I've heard that at the last meeting of the World Economic Forum, there was also a discussion of of this program, what what to do in response to a pandemic. Oh, they discussed that at Davos. I, I, that's what I've heard, as, as well as, as the, the uh, same people at this uh, uh, New York uh, uh, dry run. Mm -hmm. I did read something about the WHO never used to take money from private persons or organizations before but now they are, I guess, as just a few years ago, they started accepting money, and I think they've increased their budget or their income anyway, or revenue because they're supposed to be nonprofit uh, by a large percentage. But I don't know what that is. Do Do you know that? I, I read that, but I forgot the numbers. Yeah. Uh, anyway, so they're they're now open to private funding, and does that mean that basically they're open to funding from the pharmaceuticals as well as uh, yeah. NGOs? Um, yeah, yeah. I think the pharmaceuticals are probably the, the biggest source of money. And do you have any specific worries about that? <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, yeah. The drug companies would be happy if if everyone took a, a flu vaccine. But the trouble is, the flu vaccines contain uh, multiple uh, antigens besides influenza, or if they get a coronavirus antigen, uh, they contain adjuvants and junk antigens such as what they uh, grew the, the virus in, the, the cells they were using in their culture process. Uh, so it's a, a very complex and highly inflammatory uh, material that they, they use just to uh, promote the immune reaction for whatever the vaccine is. And uh, the trouble is that the, the viruses mutate so quickly uh, after uh, one or two or three years, uh, they uh, are very likely to have disappeared and might never come back. Uh, but it takes a year and a half or two, typically, 
to make a vaccine. And in 1975 and 76, the CDC's man in charge of overseeing flu vaccines kept telling his bosses that it was futile to try to get a vaccine in time to catch these rapidly mutating viruses. And they ignored him and went on with the program. And finally, he went on television and got fired for it. But he exposed the basically fraudulent idea that that you could have an effective, not only effective, but harmless flu virus. He was emphasizing the, the uselessness of it uh, but uh, uh, there's also the uh, harm harmfulness of it. Uh, the and, potential uh, damage. Uh, yeah, where, where only one person died uh, of uh, documented swine flu, supposedly, uh, uh, was about 300 uh, deaths were uh, reported to the uh, uh, government and uh, uh, thousands of paralysis cases were rep- reported following the, the flu virus or vaccine injection. Yeah, so the the flu vaccine shot that everybody gets every year. I mean, a lot of I know a lot of people who just go get it as a matter of course, and they they recommend it for older people now um, because you're more at risk if you're old for the flu. That's considered a vaccine, is it? Uh, uh, yeah, I, I looked at the. Uh, annual, um, I, I think, was uh, the, the flu deaths per year, uh, and there were dips. Of course, occasionally, in, uh, 2004, 2012, and I think 2016, there were noticeable decreases from the previous year. And I looked at the the vaccine supply, and I saw that uh, there was a big shortage of vaccine in 2004. Uh, and uh, uh, the biggest uh, surge of vaccine production and distribution was preceding the 2017 to 2018 uh, uh, flu season. And that was the season that they first estimated 80,000 deaths from. So it was interesting to see the historic peak in uh, sending vaccines around the country and the number of, of people dying, even though they refused, re- revised it down a little bit. Still, the, the correlation between more vaccine and, and more deaths. Now, that's interesting. Is, is there any way to judge the efficacy of a flu shot? I mean, does anybody uh, try uh, to do that? Uh, yeah, the, they, they're supposed to test it first right. on animals, which now they're, they're uh, trying to bypass the, the the process, but um, they aim to get an antibody uh, produced in first the animals and and then in the people. Uh, they test it and validate that they're producing specific antibodies. Uh, and the trouble is that the antibodies are they have some generality and overlap but they are fairly specific for a particular strain. So they're not much good for the next strain that comes in. 
around the time that the flu vaccine becomes available. And the real part of the immune system, which it's really prior to the vaccines and is, I think, a more important part of the immune system is the so-called innate immune system. But it has been known for at least 20 or 30 years to be uh, trainable or educable uh, the same way the adaptive uh, antibody system is. Uh, so uh, the, the fundamental uh, whole body uh, processes uh, uh, that uh, catch viruses in, in many ways uh, and uh, reduce the harm they do, uh, uh, this just isn't attended to because uh, the the vaccine companies uh, can demonstrate that they're producing antibodies, but uh, they can't really uh, uh, clearly clearly show what's happening in the innate system because it involves changes in in the whole body. Uh, starting with, uh, for example, the surfactant uh, protein uh, in the air sacs of the lungs and uh, the nature of, of the composition of the mucus uh, and the surface of the cells. Uh, and that applies to the, the nose and the intestine uh, as well. Uh, and the coronavirus, uh, when they've looked for where in the body uh, it, it ends up, uh, it seems to be equally distributed between the small intestine and uh, the lungs and bronchial. Hmm. Uh, so it really is, gets pretty dispersed. And that and that those are all um, yeah. surfaces where a surfactant is supposed to be present to protect you. Uh, uh, yeah, m- many factors on, on the surface. Uh, the, the mucus is uh, healthy mucus is a very powerful protector, especially if the mucus is being swept constantly uh, out of your lungs. And and then uh, once in the cell, uh, there are many layers of other uh, innate uh, protectors. And uh, since the viruses, uh, the, the coronavirus in particular, uh, is known to activate uh, all of the inflammatory processes, including uh, tending to stop the flow of mucus out of your tubes uh, and uh, uh, changing the circulatory pattern, releasing uh, histamine, serotonin, androtensin, uh, everything uh, that is harmful uh, is activated by, by these infectious uh, things. Uh, uh, and that's fairly general uh, for viruses, uh, but um, coronavirus is very powerful at activating immunity. I see. Uh, activating yeah. inflammation. I see. And this particular coronavirus is supposed to be more uh, transmissible than others. Do you think that's true? I, I don't think uh, there have been any good situations for accurately judging uh, that. I mean, it sounds like uh, a lot of these viruses, these flu viruses, um, they come and go every year, and a lot of people have them and never even know they had it. 
that's the same with this. <clears throat> when when they've tested a, a broader section of of people, not just the sick ones, uh, they find that something like eighty five percent didn't know they had anything or anything serious. Maybe uh, we could talk about how, as a country, we can move forward. And, you know, approach the, this problem rationally. I, I will. I, I think that's the important thing because they're deliberately getting people scared so that they will next season be ready to, to get vaccinated. But that panic that they're creating, our, our whole generation going back at least 50 years has been heavily indoctrinated to go to the doctor uh, like uh, in 1950, they were putting out uh, instructions uh, how to identify uh, uh, cancer at an early stage uh, and training people to recognize the, the signs of, of cancer. Uh, and uh, th- there are these various programs uh, designed to get people to go to their doctors regularly for checkups. Uh, if you're having a regular checkup for heart disease, for example. That's supposed to be protective. Uh, so people are, are trained to think of the medical profession uh, as uh, protective, uh, but there's really no objective evidence uh, that that protects uh, against anything. Uh, and in fact, when you look at the uh, studies that try to be objective, uh, uh, there are two publications I know of that uh, l- looked at the hospital deaths alone, and uh, one group said uh, uh, at least uh, 220,000 deaths are caused by accidents caused by the medical staff. Another group said 440,000 deaths per year caused by medical mistakes. And still, uh, there were surveys uh, asking doctors whether they had seen deadly mistakes made in the hospital without reporting them. Uh, And uh, that's another uh, reason that the numbers might be bigger than the 220,000 or 440,000, because uh, many doctors uh, said that they uh, saw the the accidents and, and didn't report them. And then there are the mistaken things that doctors do because they're taught to do them uh, that uh, have no valid scientific basis. Uh, and uh, my next uh, newsletter is going to be on some of those points uh, that uh, probably will make the uh, hospital mortality caused by medical mistakes of various kinds bigger than those numbers that have been published. But those numbers already put deaths caused by medical mistakes in third place behind heart disease and cancer deaths. And that wasn't including hospital-acquired infections, which amount to around 100,000 deaths per year. And when you look at just those numbers, uh, going to the hospital should be 
a very last resort, uh, like like when you uh, want uh, you know some repair that that you know there's an appropriate uh, treatment for a broken bone or or a cut a blood vessel or something. But uh, since there's nothing safe and effective against the virus, uh, people are are going in the hospitals very with very little examination are putting them on ventilators. And uh, one of the common practices uh, when people come in with respiratory uh, infections, even before they go on a a ventilator, they might get aerosolized antiviral, uh, such as ribavirin, uh, even though there's no uh, published evidence showing that that reduces mortality. Uh, since they know it works in vitro, it'll reduce the virus in in cells in a culture dish. But there's no no proven evidence that it protects the person uh, against the virus uh, in in the living state. Uh, that, that's still a, a common practice in hospitals. Uh, that or several other viruses, and uh, these viruses or hydroxychloroquine. Is this antivirals? You mean? Yeah. So so-called. Yeah, uh, they're they're classified. Uh, hydroxyquinoline is, is classified as an anti-malarial and anti-inflammatory uh, for rheumatoid arthritis and such. But uh, these uh, the nucleoside analogs or nucleotide analogs or or the hydroxyquinoline quinoline uh, categories. These are all recognized as hazardous, mutagenic, possibly carcinogenic drugs. They they damage the the RNA or or DNA of the virus, but they also damage the human DNA and RNA. And so they're known to be very toxic. And if they are figuring that uh, the person is beyond reproductive age, uh, then they, they uh, minimize the, the effects of mutating their DNA. Uh, but especially in, in people who might still reproduce, it's not good to give them uh, mutagens. Uh, and the, the ventilation itself, uh, if they have to stick a tube uh, down your, your windpipe, that uh, tends to activate inflammation just by the, the mechanical damage it does. Uh, and uh, they are typically using 40 to 60% uh, oxygen supplements. Sometimes it's just air, but if you speed the respiration uh, with uh, just, just ordinary air, and especially if you double or triple the amount of oxygen, in the air, you're necessarily going to reduce the amount of carbon dioxide in their lungs and bloodstream in general. And carbon dioxide is a major anti-inflammatory defense against the damage that the viruses are doing. So scientifically, there's a lot of evidence to show that what they're doing very quickly when someone gets to the hospital panicked over the coronavirus, what they're doing is very, very dangerous and 
you would assume that it's increasing the speed of... Yeah, not what they're intending to do, but possibly what's happening. They're telling us not to go to the hospital unless you're extremely sick, so you're... That's that's the best advice. Yeah, that's very good advice, (laughs) turns out. Um, And I was just wondering, if you are, if you do have some respiratory problem and you're having trouble getting enough oxygen or having trouble breathing, just going off what you just said, it seems like that would naturally increase your CO2 as a response to that. Um, If they would more generally use carbogen, which is 5% carbon dioxide added to oxygen, uh, that will give you uh, more oxygen actually than just hyperventilating a person uh, with an ordinary ventilator. The carbon dioxide is anti-inflammatory and um, has many pro-respiratory effects. It uh, helps to deliver uh, uh, the oxygen into uh, moving it from the blood into the energy-producing cells, and it opens up capillaries that have been uh, constricted by such things mm. as angiotensin uh, produced by infections. So, and so if, the, if you wanted to instruct somebody how to do it, you'd say, um, you know, if you had to do the ventilator, you'd do, um, or a breathing tent probably is less invasive than a ventilator, would, be, would it be 35% oxygen and 5% CO2, or what would you suggest? Oh, with 30%, I think even 1% CO2 oh. would be a big help. Okay. And then it would not be so dangerous, you think? Yeah. All right. That's good to know. And are you isolating at home, Ray, or are you going out? Oh, I pretty much always stay at home. Just oh, yeah. <laughs> go, out, go out to buy milk and, and gasoline. Yeah. Well, it's kind of the same here. We haven't noticed too much difference, except... I did notice going to the grocery store, uh, which I did yesterday, people actually seem quite traumatized. A lot, <laughs> yeah. a lot of people have masks on, and you know they look furtive, and they're nobody's stopping to chat, at least not for very long. Uh, yeah, I, I, I think uh, infected people, uh, it, it's good if they wear masks when they go out in public, mm-hmm. but I, I don't think masks are helping uh, uh, people who are not infected because... Uh, if if it's floating in uh, uh, submicroscopic particles, uh, they'll get around the mask. I was wondering, do masks increase your CO2 levels? I feel like it's like breathing into a bag. Not not very much. Oh, they don't? Uh, uh, yeah, the, the carbon dioxide doesn't stay in place. Oh, I see. So breathing into a bag is much more effective. Than uh, yeah. Yeah, because you're just recirculating it over and over again. Mm-hmm. That brings me to the subject of anti-inflammatories. Um, on our radio station here, we carry a show that I think is carried on a lot of community radio stations. It's called uh, Time of Useful Consciousness Radio uh, with Mariah Gillardin. And I, in my opinion, it's usually an excellent show. Uh, this last week, she carried um, an English doctor named, I think his name was John Campbell. And in part... Most of his show was talking about um, how important isolation is, uh, but he concluded the show by saying that there's a reason that we get a fever, and it's, it's important, especially with coronavirus, 
and he quoted some French uh, medical ministers as as confirmation of this that with uh, the fever of coronavirus it can cause a lot of negative complications if you use uh, anti-inflammatories of any kind non-steroidal and steroidal and I was wondering what your opinion about that is I, I saw that but I also saw his uh, video on uh, vitamin D the vi- vitamin D uh, talk is very good, uh, and what vitamin D is doing is profoundly anti-inflammatory. Uh, but he he recommends vitamin D, uh, and vitamin D, and aspirin, and vitamin B1, uh, and progesterone. Uh, their benefit is uh, in this situation largely uh, by lowering the angiotensin receptor. Uh, a very central basic thing in uh, anti-inflammatory protection. Uh, so, so vitamin D uh, is uh, one of our, our central uh, anti-inflammatory things and very protective uh, against uh, all kinds of viral infections and other infections as well. I would be curious to know if if the uh, coronavirus has a hard time uh, surviving in humans in sunny places then, where there's more vitamin D. I I think that would be, uh, yeah, uh, the trouble with that correlation is uh, that, uh, uh, for example, in uh, the ah. Islamic countries, uh, women in, in particular, cover up. Uh, and uh, I've had friends in Mexico who, uh, even though it's high altitude and very sunny, they had very low vitamin D levels because uh, they don't want to get over suntanned. And, and oh, so yeah. women in particular uh, go out in, in the sun with parasols or hats mm. and long sleeves. Uh, and so surprisingly, uh, living in a, a very sunny climate, uh, a lot of people, especially women, are, are deficient in, yeah. in vitamin D. Yeah, good point. Um, and going back to John Campbell's uh, talk about f- fever being important and, and not um, uh, getting in the way of the fever's work to uh, kill off the coronavirus, do you feel like aspirin would interfere with the fever, or what's your feeling about fever in general? Um, aspirin uh, can often increase your thyroid function and cell respiration so much uh, that it doesn't uh, affect your fever, but it can lower uh, the need for a fever uh, since uh, angiotensin uh, overproduction uh, is a basic harm factor of any infection that you have, uh, you're stopping the mechanism of the harm, and that is what is lowering the fever. Uh, it isn't just mechanically turning off heat production. It actually increases uh, oxidative metabolism and uh, at least temporarily will increase thyroid function. Uh, so it's uh, when it uh, reduces the fever, uh, I think it's most often uh, because it's uh, remedying uh, the, the thing that is causing the fever. Um, so the fever basically hinges on the inflammation. If if aspirin lowers the inflammation, then the fever is no longer necessary. Uh, and it, it, it happens to be uh, an antiviral agent in itself. It's been tested uh, against uh, 
four or five major viruses, all of which it, it, I, I think it ranks up with the toxic chemicals that they sell for the purpose of killing viruses, but it happens that just as a side effect, uh, aspirin itself uh, interferes with the reproduction of viruses. Yeah, well, why use something cheap like aspirin when you can use something actually that's exciting and dangerous? Yeah, yeah the, the idea of, of something uh, uh, re really strong to kill the pathogen and virus uh, uh, aspirin uh, even though there's evidence that it is very effective at stopping viruses, they don't think of it as as a, a deadly uh, toxic agent. Uh, same with with cancer. Uh, the, the ideology is that you have to kill cancer cells, but in fact, cancer cells are are weak and defective and don't live very long. But uh, the problem is they're being replaced so fast. Uh, if if you just work on slowing whatever it is causing their replacement and you don't have to worry about killing them because they just naturally die right. because they're defective. Yeah, and going back to the fever from the coronavirus, does the fever actually, is it capable of killing the virus? It um, activates various parts of your immune reaction. Uh, so uh, I'm not sure whether there have been studies on this mm -hmm. particular kind of virus, but uh, the ability to produce antibodies, for example, is increased with fever, and uh, white blood cells uh, can eat faster at a higher temperature. Uh, so, in, in general, uh, your resistance is increased with the fever. I've always associated that the fever is basically, you know, you're getting hot and miserable and having hallucinations, but it's, you know, it's killing off the bug inside of you. So in a way it is because it's in enabling your immune system to rev up. I, I, yeah, it, it's revving up your, your whole system. Uh, uh, it uh, doesn't, uh, it uh, might even uh, make make some germs more energetic too, but the thing is it gives your body uh, the, the greater advantage more than it does for the speed of replication yeah. of the germs. Because, I mean, how hot can you get before you can't survive anymore? It's, isn't it like 106? Yeah, yeah, 106 is... Uh, when they treat people with cancer, uh, sometimes uh, they um, keep them at, at more than 106, uh, up around 107 for a few hours, and people seem to, seem to tolerate that. You mean they give them something to raise their body temperature? Uh, no, put put them in a, a, a hot tub or a box, uh, a, a box with uh, heat lamps, uh, just their head sticking out, uh, and uh, they put thermometers. Uh, now that they have uh, thermometers that you can swallow, but uh, they used to uh, just give a, a rectal thermometer and uh, uh, oral thermometers, and uh, uh, take care not to go over 107. Uh, and uh, they found that uh, several major types of cancer would uh, uh, die after uh, multiple uh, treatments of maybe five to ten hours at a time. Okay. Um, is there anything we didn't cover that you wanted to? The, the, um, a lot of places warning about uh, anti-inflammatory drugs, uh, they're extending it to aspirin uh, and 
uh, they're generally getting confused that thinking that uh, the ACE2 uh, enzyme that is the target of the coronavirus, uh, thinking that uh, that uh, shouldn't be increased because it would increase the chance of catching the coronavirus, and they're even confusing it as a, a cause of hypertension and so on. Oh. Uh, it, it's complicated enough that it's hard to explain it even to doctors because they get get fixed ideas. Yeah, it is it is hard to understand. Um, so maybe that's what John Campbell was talking about, and that's what the uh, he was quoting those French. Um, uh, yeah, uh, and there was an article in Lancet uh, that said basically the same thing: stop taking uh, anti-inflammatories because they'll increase your ACE2 enzyme and make a bigger target. Uh, but there had already been half a dozen very clear papers saying that the the virus decreases your ACE2 enzyme, increasing the uh, uh, pro-inflammatory uh, angiotensin production. Uh, and so what you need to do is get your ACE2 back in production to destroy the inflammatory mediator. Okay. Well, that's great to know. I was reading an opinion piece by Scott Atlas, and he uh, he was working off of the uh, statistics or the um, epidemiological analysis by uh, Dr. John Ioannidis. Is that how you say, say his name? Um, oh, yeah. yeah. And he was saying it doesn't make much sense to lock everybody up uh, forever. It's in terms of a um, you know physical distancing uh, during this uh, pandemic. Uh, he thought it would make much more sense to only try to isolate those who are most vulnerable and let the rest of the population build up immunity because 99% of everybody's uh, symptoms will be just, um, you know, minor. They'll get sniffles or or nothing at all. Uh, not... uh, yeah, yeah. That, that's very reasonable. Uh, uh, Sweden has basically done nothing resembling uh, the United States uh, program. Uh, the government there, uh, so far, has uh, told old old people and sick people to stay home, uh, and everyone to wash their hands, uh, and uh, basically just behave sensibly, mm-hmm. not shutting down businesses. Yeah, that that does seem to make a lot of of sense. Um, but I think we're operating on the premise that it, this is, you know, a deadly disease that even 30-year-olds are dying. And I and I have heard reports of, uh, you know, 30-year-old nurses or 50-year-old nurses who are in hospitals. Uh, and the explanation is that they're just, even though they're wearing some protective gear, they're just getting exposed over and over again. And finally, they're succumbing and, you know, a couple of them have died, um, even though they're not old and with no known existing conditions, uh, pre-existing conditions. And what do you make of that? First, I would have to see what drugs they were being given uh, and uh, whether they were being respirated. Uh, But uh, it's possible that uh, the virus actually is more deadly uh, than previous ones, but there's just no statistical uh, evidence of that. Yeah. 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 Um, 
So we started this this show talking about the statistics, and we let me find out. So an average year of deaths, the way the CDC is now counting deaths, has been uh, forty thousand um, average year. And do you know what is the four month flu months? Is it December through April? That's five months. But. Well, um, it, it really starts halfway through November and usually ends in March, but uh, it's yeah. variable every year, uh, slightly different. Uh, uh, December, January, February, and March are, are the most, uh, uh, historically, have the most respiratory infections, but with, with small, very small, relatively, uh, sicknesses, uh, even starting in November and October uh, and going uh, through April uh, and uh, tailing off very faintly. In and June. do you know what the current you know total is for flu deaths in um, the United States for this season? Uh, uh, what I saw yesterday was... Uh, Oh, oh, total so far? No, no, I haven't seen it. In the case of two years ago, it took them oh. about a year to to revise that eighty thousand estimate down yeah. to sixty-one thousand. So I don't think they'll even come out with with their general estimate, which will include all kinds sure. of pneumonia. Yeah, I was just wondering if if we could tell where we were on the. Um, you know, compared to the average at this point, but there's no way to know that. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, no. Uh, well, uh, the, the number that they uh, are blaming on on coronavirus uh, is uh, less than what you would expect if it's uh, normally ten percent yeah. of the flu deaths. So. Um, if, for example, if it was uh, in the 60 to 80,000 uh, range, as in 2017 and 18, uh, and if the variation was 15% uh, instead of the average 10% coronavirus, uh, then you could uh, say that just a statistical fluctuation based on the last five years uh, uh, could be 15,000 deaths this year uh, yeah. from coronavirus. So I, I just went to the CDC uh, page about flu, and so the, for this year they're estimating 24 to 62,000, um, which sounds like what you're saying is you know a light year range to a to a slightly more than normal yeah. year range. Yeah. So uh, yeah. So that's a little puzzling. And they, uh, yeah, uh, and uh, the figures that Wolfgang Vodarg uh, gave showed a range from five to fourteen percent uh, of the respiratory diseases being a coronavirus. So if if uh, this year the coronavirus happened to be a larger percent, uh, then uh, that could be uh, about uh, one seventh of fifty thousand, for example. So seven thousand. Uh, would still be uh, not outside uh, the recent history yeah. 
figures. All right. Well, I guess we'll see what happens. And um, I very much appreciate your analysis of the situation. Um, you had a quote in one of your newsletters, uh, f- the recent one, in fact, Context for Vaccinations. And uh, I think it was fear of terrorism and fear of disease are marketing tools. And it does seem like at least the media is certainly hyping the fear uh, factor. And another thing to take note of is that the the biggest advertiser in the United States uh, and maybe around the world are the pharmaceuticals. Um, they advertise more through the media than any other type of business. Uh, yeah, and the CDC is being their, their most cooperative uh, spreader of their ideology, advertising ideology. Yeah, they do seem to work hand in hand. Just to sum up, Ray, if, if you wouldn't mind going over again all the things one can do to keep themselves healthy and keep an innate immune system working well, sleep would be one of those, isn't it? Uh, uh, yeah, and um, a good diet is necessary for sleep. Uh, vitamin D and the associated calcium uh, work together. Uh, vitamin D is anti-inflammatory, but it works by uh, lowering parathyroid hormone, and it can't do that if your phosphate intake is very high relative to calcium. Uh, so cutting down on your uh, beans, nuts, and meat, and fish, and increasing uh, cooked green leaves, cheese, and milk uh, will uh, improve the function of the anti-inflammatory, anti-infective vitamin D, uh, lowering the parathyroid hormone and all of the associated uh, pro-inflammatory things that it does. Well, that sounds good. Let's see if we can work on that. And even if it is a worse flu year than other years, we'll beat that back and make it to summer and get our uh, country back online again. Yeah. Okay. Well, uh, Dr. Raymond Pete, thanks so much for being on the show today. And I really appreciate getting your analysis. Okay. Okay. Take care of yourself. Thanks. Okay, bye-bye. You've been listening to an interview with Dr. Raymond Pete, a Ph.D. physiologist from Eugene, Oregon. If you want to know more about Raymond Pete, you can go to his website, raypete.com. That's R-A-Y-P-E-A-T dot com. The preceding program presented the views of its participants and producers and did not necessarily reflect an official opinion of any other person or organization, and it was not intended as medical advice. You've been listening to Politics and Science. I've been your host, John Barkhausen, and please tune in again next week for another edition of Politics and Science.